Good morning. My name is Peter, and I'm here to introduce our next storyteller. Uh, four categories that I've been thinking about in my head and putting all of you in one of these buckets as I interact with you, because I like playing those kind of games. Uh, this is uh, innovator, implementer, analyzer, or connector. You know, they say we're all one of these things primarily. And uh, when I first met Brad Dewey, he just was exuding innovator leader energy. And so I'm really excited to get, have you get to know him better. Come on up, and as you come on up, let me just list off your resume a little bit. He's kind of a fun innovator guy. He was involved with Napster. Do you remember that Napster thing? And then he was responsible for bringing the iPhone to T-Mobile, I think. And now he's like, a, like something to do with Sonos. I don't know. <laughs> Here you go, Brad. Tell us a story. Peter. Thanks, Peter. That's super kind. So I'm very grateful to be able to share a story today on uh, Father's Day. And I'm going to share about the person who's had the greatest impact on me as an individual, and that's my dad. Uh, the other two are my mom and my wife, Christy. But it's Father's Day, so I'm going to talk about my dad. So this is my dad, David Dewey. Uh, he's 78, lives in San Diego. He's uh, been married to my mom for over 58 years. Uh, for the last 52 years, he's been in fire protection, selling everything from fire trucks to fire extinguishers. And um, my dad, growing up, had many sayings that I'd hear as a kid. I'm going to share a few of them. Um, you, can do, you can be anything you want to be. Every kick in the butt is a boost. If it were easy, it would be someone else's job. How do you eat an elephant? You have freedoms. You abuse them, you lose them. Never underestimate the power of prayer. So I'd hear these things growing up, and now not a week goes by that I don't repeat them with either my kids, the people at work, friends. So I thought I'd just share a couple uh, stories here on each of these quotes. Uh, the first one is, you could be anything you want to be. My dad's just an incredible encourager. Uh, he has a strength of showing his love through words of encouragement. And since I was a tiny boy, he would tell me, Brad, you could be anything you want to be. And he kept telling me it's so often that I actually believed him. And so I would go and set these goals, and he would be my number one fan and encourager. But I must admit, many times things didn't go as planned. But um, when things didn't go well, my dad was my number one encourager still. And that kind of relates to the second saying, every kick in the butt's a boost. Uh, the visual on that one's pretty interesting, right? But it's, it's one of these, my dad had an incredible ability, still does, to find the optimistic aspect of things and to, uh, you know, learn from difficult times. And, um, you know, it's really my dad's ability to pour courage into me. That's what his encouragement did. But, um, you know, when things didn't go great, uh, he would basically say, either for himself or me, he'd basically go, well... You know, every kick in the butt's a boost, and on we go. And uh, even as recently as a month ago, I called my dad, and I'm telling him, I said, man, I just had one of the most difficult weeks, lowest points of my entire professional career. And uh, I said, God, it's, it's probably the worst day of my professional career. Without skipping a beat, my dad suddenly goes, well, you know what? It's all up from here then. It's great. He's all, have you read your resume? You know, Lord has planned for you. Uh, he's all, don't worry. So even in those times, he's been such an incredible encourager. So this next one, I heard many a times. I repeat this one all the time. 
If it were easy, it would be someone else's job. So a little context here. You know, my dad grew up um, on a farm in Iowa, very little money. Uh, most of his clothes were hand-me-downs from his older brother. For Christmas, in his stocking, he would literally get like an orange socks and underwear. You know, nothing fancy. He'd do chore twice a day and work really hard, a lot of tough jobs. So right, you know, a couple years before I was born, my mom and dad moved to San Diego. And uh, when I was born, you know, since I was a little taught, literally I'd go to my dad's office and go to work with him. And I think as soon as I could hold a broom, he'd have me, you know, sleep sweeping floors and things. But because I grew up in California, they said, we got to make sure he really knows how to work. So when I was 10, even though we'd visited the farms, he sent me to my uncle's farm. And he told my uncle, make sure this kid really learns how to work. And so um, one of my jobs on the farm was walking beans. So I don't know if we have any farmers in the audience, but walking beans is something. When you grow crops, you typically in Iowa, you go and you grow beans and corn and you rotate them. And they actually help each other. They help the soil. But the issue is the year you, you grow uh, beans, the corn from the prior year grows up in the bean field, along with these nasty cockleberry weeds with stickers and everything. So here I am, I'm 10, sun's just beating down, super humid, and the bugs are so loud, they're like screaming, and they give me a machete, and you basically walk the, the bean rows and cut the corn and weeds out. And it was rough, and my cousin was way better at it, but it, you know, the big reward when you got to the end you got to go around, turn around, and do the next row over and over again. And then during, you know, between those chores, we'd mend fences, bale hay, do chore and all that. So I learned how to work. Got back to San Diego, and on uh, Sundays, my dad and I would, well, the whole family would go to church every Sunday. But my Sunday afternoons were literally filled doing yard work with my dad. And... Uh, Anytime I would start to, you know, complain about a job, he's like, Brad, if it was easy, it would be someone else's job. Now get in here and help me. So I really learned how to work. And um, later I became a lawyer and I was putting in, you know, back-to-back 14-hour days at the law firm. And it was one of those things, compared to walking beans, I'm like, this is nothing, <laughs> right? This is nothing. This is air conditioning. So uh, I really appreciate um, how my dad really taught me how to work. Uh, this next one is, how do you eat an elephant? So does anybody know how you eat an elephant? <laughs> one bite at a time, yep. This was about problem solving, and whenever I encountered a problem, my dad would literally ask me two questions. One, you prayed about it. Second one, he'd go, well, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. He will just break it, break it down and start eating, get after it. So uh, this is one that, uh, you know, any problem was never too big, and he would always encourage, you know, with that uh, song, but my God is bigger than any mountain, bigger than anything. And so there was really, like, no problem that was too big. So this next one, you have freedoms. You abuse them, you lose them. This is about personal responsibility, and my dad was great about giving me responsibility and seeing if I could handle it. And uh, one time... I was at a friend's house, we were watching a movie, and uh, I was 15, so I, I couldn't drive. My friend, the driver, was saying, well, we're going to go after the movie's over. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm going to be about 30 minutes, maybe more late. And uh, for, for the young ones in the audience, 
This was before cell phones. You couldn't just text or, you know, quick call. But there were landlines. I could have called them, and I didn't. So movie ends. We're pulling up the driveway. My friend's pulling me up. Out from the house walks my dad in his underwear, <laughs> meeting me at the car. Brad, do you know what time it is? Get out. Yes, Dad. He's all, you have freedoms. You abuse them, you lose them. As you might imagine, I lost some freedoms for the next couple weeks there. But uh, my dad really taught me that sense of personal responsibility, and I really didn't want to disappoint him. So the final one here is... Uh, Never underestimate the power of prayer and the importance of faith. And um, this one was big. Of course, I told you we already went to church uh, every Sunday, and we usually went to the 8 o'clock service. So this is 10, this is 8 o'clock service. I think it was so we could fit more yard work in in the afternoon. <laughs> but uh, what even had like another just great impact on his faith is every morning, my sisters and I had two older sisters, and we'd be getting ready for school, and their hair dryers were going, and we're trying to eat, get ready. And my dad would actually walk to the stairwell and read the daily devotion. And for this, like, was such a chaotic moment, it would pause and my dad would read the daily devotion and then pray for the family. And it was such uh, an impact on us. And then any, and the chaos would just subside and we'd all listen. And then poof, air dryers back on when he's done. But um, it was, it was such an impact on me. And, uh, it, you know, when anything went well in life, he would, he would begin with the same, what an answer to prayer. And he still prays for us every day. So um, I'm going to wrap up, but it's, it's one of the things that my dad had all these great sayings, and he would say all these things, but I think I learned a lot from observing my dad uh, and what he did. And my dad likes to have fun, and he laughs with his friends, and that hasn't stopped at any age. And the other one is he's, um, he's not afraid to show his emotions, particularly when it's joy or love, uh, especially for his family. So my mom sang in the church choir, and she also sang in this quartet. And uh, there was one Sunday, my sisters and I were with my dad in the pew, and my mom was singing up front. And I looked over at my dad. He had this huge grin on his face, and as I looked back, there was this tear of joy running down his face. It was just awesome. It had such a big impact on me. He just loved her so much, was proud of her, and, and really was just happy, tears of joy. And uh, so he, you know, he made it a big point to say, you know, make sure you find a Christian wife and uh, tell your family you love them. So with that, I'll wrap up by saying, Dad, he's not here, but uh, he's down in San Diego. We'll send him a message. But Dad, I love you. Happy Father's Day. And to my wife, I love you. Thank you. And to Braden Slater, I love you guys. So, so all the dads out there, you have a huge impact on your kids. And uh, may God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you. So this morning's scripture um, is from the book of 2 Timothy. Please follow along in your Bible, or you can use the screens. I'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17 in the New International Version Bible. Uh, the second part of this verse is, is especially uh, relevant for me. So 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. 
You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scriptures God breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are starting a, uh, we've been in a new series, and we're uh, doing a sermon called Plumbline. And uh, we're going to touch on this idea of post-modernity a little bit today, and let me just sum it up for us real quick. Post-modernity started as a movement to give voice to minorities, whatever minority. So it said that you don't have to be the majority for your opinions and your thoughts to matter. Everybody's opinions matter. And that was sort of the heart of post-modernity. And that was good, especially if you weren't the majority voice. It gave voice to ethnic minorities. It gave, it gave voice to cultural minorities, uh, to gender minorities, uh, and whatnot. But the side effect of validating these different voices was it made people go, oh, then truth is relevant. It's not just one thing, but it can be many things. So it led to sort of, how do you think about it? What do you feel? And it sort of pluralized this idea of truth. And then there was a reaction to postmodernity. And so we said, well, if everything is valid, then how do we know if something is actually valid? How do we know if something is actually true? So then this uh, the culture sort of glommed onto this idea of authenticity. We want to know what's real, not just what somebody's opinion is or somebody thinks, but what's real, what's authentic. And as we began to go towards this idea of authenticity, then we began to sort of showcase our authentic selves, and we gave rise to social media that was sort of built around the self being authentic. Here is the authentic me having lunch. Here's a picture of it. Right? This is sort of what happened. And what we now see in our uh, culture is a normalized self-centeredness, which now has given rise to comparison. So people are really anxious all the time because of all the self-centeredness that we're employing to try to prove that we are being authentic as a way to combat everything being relative. It all started years ago, decades ago, with post-modernity. And now, today, we have an inundation of self-centeredness, anxiety, and unhelpful information, often untrue or just plain too much. Does some of this resonate with you? Is this the culture we live in? How do you feel about this? 
Now, because everyone's opinion is valid, all we have is sort of the self to say, well, this is how I feel. This is what I think. We emphasize the I part of it to say, and that's called linguistic hedging. When we say, I feel this way, nobody can sort of attack you for feeling a certain way. It's just your feelings, right? And then, you know, people, groups, uh, still like to draw a line, so they have sort of uh, rules and uh, truths that they put forth, but they hedge it by saying, this is just what we think. These are our opinions, we do sort of a, a linguistic hedging as a way to protect our opinions and put it out there. All that is an introduction to ask this question, is there a way to be in our culture that allows you and I to have views or to say something is true or to hold a position or a stance without being judged as being intolerant or narrow-minded? Is there a way for you to be without having to play this game? I think this is an interesting question. And the way I want to uh, go about it is, is there a plumb line by which we get to measure whether somebody's opinion or feelings are true or valid or right or helpful? Or do we have to just say, well, that's just what they think and it's true for them, therefore it's true enough, we let them be. Sort of live and let live sort of live these parallel but separate lives. And this becomes tricky for me as somebody who claims to be a Christian. I claim to believe in God who uh, is a moral authority in my life. You know, he tells me what's right and what's good and what's true. The Bible says when something is beautiful and right, you think on these things. And then the culture says, well, anything can be beautiful, it's just all relative. A part of me says, no, I think there is such a thing as beauty with a capital B. Something that is actually beautiful. You know, music with a capital M. Opinion with a capital O. You know, truth, conviction. Is there room for that way of viewing life and the world? And that's sort of the question I want to tackle briefly today. Uh, I will say that I got a late start this morning but I worked really hard on writing a short sermon because it's Father's Day. And I don't know what dads want in general, but at church, if they are here at church, they want short sermons. So this is my way of trying to honor them. So we're going to uh, blow through this a little bit. I did a bunch of the heavy lifting for us. Uh, the chapter, chapter 3, the first section, which wasn't read for us, I highlighted some words that I think aptly describe our contemporary culture. Notice the words that I bolded for us. People will be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, without love, having a form of godliness but denying its power, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, let me unpack a couple of these things. Lovers of themselves. Now, I use social media. I just uploaded like 30 pictures to my Facebook account just yesterday. So I am definitely one who is in the soup. So I'm not calling anybody else out unless I'm calling myself out also. But I understand that if I put pictures of my life and myself up, it's me going, look at me. I am worthy of your attention. Stop what you're doing and look. 
And please, like it. Goodness, if you want to do right by me, make a comment. <laughs> Since I put the pictures up yesterday, how many times have I checked my Facebook account? What are the numbers that I want to see in my notification icon there? I want to see double digits. <laughs> because at heart, I am a lover of self. Now, I like to pretend that I don't like to be, uh, I don't like to listen to myself speak, and I sort of cringe when I think about the fact that I speak on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, a good friend of mine who keeps me honest, he says, Peter, nobody gets behind a microphone to be invisible. Like, if you had an objective, a mission to be invisible, you don't go, okay, let me see, what's the first thing I can do? Where is there a microphone? You don't do that. Right? So I have, to, I have to cop to this. I am a lover of self, and that's a large part of what our culture is, has embraced as normal and natural. And that leads to us being boastful and proud. That's what we are. And I like to blame the young ones, but it's actually some of the worst offenders are the silver hairs in this room. Because you guys, some of you don't even know how the game works. You just are <laughs> putting pictures up there. Um, but here's, here's, a, here's the part that stings, without love. You don't do it for the edification of other people most of the time. Your purpose, your intent isn't to love on somebody else. Right? And I really like this next one, having a form of godliness but denying its power. The first thing I thought of about our culture when I read that phrase is the cultural value of tolerance. Now, these cultural values shift all the time. It's one thing one day, it's another thing the next. Tolerance is a good thing. I think tolerance is necessary, all that. But as a supreme value, it's terrible. It's not and should not be a leader in our life because it is a form of godliness. It's a form of righteousness. Like if I'm a tolerant person, then I feel like I'm on superior moral ground. And if I am, then I get to look down on people that I perceive as being intolerant. And so I have to be intolerant of people who I perceive to be intolerant because I'm a tolerant person. Think about the self-cannibalizing nature of the value of tolerance. It just eats itself up. It can't exist. Because for me to proclaim that I'm tolerant is to say I'm intolerant of you if I think of you as being intolerant. It's self-contradicting. It's hypocritical at its core. And that's a form of godliness or self-righteousness without power. Being tolerant doesn't have power to be helpful or to change society. It's just a temporary cultural value that has a form of godliness, but it denies its power. And then the next one, verse 7, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's life in general these days. You know me, I'm an article junkie. My goal this year is to read 52 books. That's one book a week. I'm about four books behind right now. But it doesn't mean that I'm learning the truth. One thing I love about what Brad said, it was a great story, by the way, Brad. Thank you for that. Super well told. I love how you ended it, though. And it reminded me of how I've grown up. I grew up with people just screaming in my ear about the Bible, basically. 
And I devoured the Bible. I've read it many times through. I've broken it down. I've analyzed it. I went to grad school and professionally studied for four years. I studied every week for my job. Now, when I read all the other extra-biblical books and articles, I love how my mind has been shaped. It's been hardwired now this way. Now, when I read something, the next thing that happens is I compare it to something in the Scriptures, and it fortifies what I, the center pole of my life, which is the Scriptures. I love how that works. But it, I shudder to think, if I didn't have the Bible as the foundation, as a central pole in my life, what happens to all the things I'm learning? Knowledge doesn't equal truth. Demons even know, but they don't have the truth, the Bible says. They shudder at the knowledge they have because they don't have the truth. And that's what our society is like. Everybody thinks they know something. If you listen to millennials talk, they're always quoting articles to each other, podcasts and whatnot. It's like listening to freshmen talk. You know, freshmen are really sort of an interesting class because they really feel like they're different and they're awesome and they're invincible. They know everything, and yet they don't. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I think that this, these first nine verses shockingly and so aptly describe our contemporary culture. And all that has raised up the level of anxiety in our lives you know, there are books and articles and podcasts being produced uh, trying to address the toxicity of our culture these days. You know, just talking of, just thinking about the idea of comparison. When somebody is being quote-unquote authentic and self-centered and they put themselves out there on some kind of social media platform, you instantly compare their highlight reel to your everyday life. Right? You compare their vacation pictures to your life at work. So comparison happens, and it has a toxic effect. And I'm not sure how to step into this toxic culture to be somebody who believes something, somebody who has stances and positions and views on things. And my personal research tells me that everybody, even the most culturally you know, uh, centered person, the most... Uh, uh, contemporary and engaged and culture-loving person, every single person has stances and views. Sometimes it aligns with culture and sometimes it doesn't. But everybody's got views. But can we have views as a Christian, for those of us that are, in this climate? That's the big question. And then the second half of this chapter, uh, Paul gives us his antidote to this toxic culture. He says this, you, however, know all about my teaching. And what's the key phrase there? My way of life. My purpose. Which really is a way of love. And he does it at a cost. Persecutions, sufferings, persecutions. And again, will be persecuted. So to cut to the quick, here's what Paul is saying. You're surrounded by a culture that's self-centered and really without love. And people claim to be connecting with you, but they're actually using you to bolster themselves up. Their agenda or their purpose is to objectify you, to see you as an opportunity, to use you. And if you are a vulnerable widow, to get into your home and to bleed you dry, he gives that example. 
but basically people are out there being self-centered out to use and abuse you. And then after they're done with you, they will discard you. They claim to have these interesting ideas and views, but really, at the core of it, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new is happening in our culture today. It's just people being people. And then in contrast, Paul says, but you know about my way of life. You know my agenda, my purpose. It wasn't to use you and discard you, but it was to love you. And how do you know this? How do you know that Paul's way of life is true? How do you know that his motive, his purpose is love? The cost, the price he pays. Personal sacrifice persecutions and sufferings and he says and if you want to live this way too you too will be persecuted jesus said the same thing no servant is greater than his master if i am persecuted so will you too be paul's purpose isn't hidden he doesn't have some self-serving agenda It's plain to all because of his way of life. And his way of life was marked by suffering. And so here is a word for all of us. If you want to be in this world in a way that is salt and light, in a way that's actually loving and helpful to other people, if you claim to have a view, if you claim to have a position on whatever social issue you're thinking about right now, The way in, the way you find platform and voice in our culture today is to use the plumb line of love and personal suffering. Unless you are willing to put your own self on the line rather than to be self-centered, but employ yourself for the good of the other, you don't get to have an opinion. You don't get to complain that the church has lost its privilege and it's not Christendom anymore. You don't get to complain about how the church has lost its social status. You don't get to complain about the culture and how you feel persecuted for being a believer of of Christ. Until and unless your life is marked by love and personal sacrifice. After all these years, after all the technological advancements and all the ways that we've evolved and grown in knowledge and so forth, still, to this day, the only thing that matters is love, even to the point of shedding blood. So Christians, those of you who are Christians in here, if you have an opinion, if you have a view, if you have a stance on anything, anything, until you're ready to put your own self, your life on the line, it's better that you don't say anything. Because that's empty gong. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. That it's just noise. Toxicity, as we saw in the first half, is opinions and agendas that lack love that aren't focused on the betterment of other people, and it's absent of personal suffering. The antidote that our society needs today, that our church needs, that people need, that our culture needs, is love and personal sacrifice. That's a hard word. I wish it wasn't 
that way. But it has always been that way, and it will always be that way. Let's move on to application. I want to give you a, a clue as you uh, try to apply this message. Who and what to ignore. Because we are inundated with self-centeredness, because we're inundated with information, we need a quick way to sort of, sort of ignore uh, as much of it as we can. And my first uh, offering to you is to ignore opinions that are without love or sacrifice. When somebody says, you know, I think, and you can fill in the blank, but if their way of life is not marked by love and personal sacrifice, feel free to ignore them, including me, especially me maybe. Who cares what I think? Who cares what I say? It's just a yoke I'm putting on you unless you see it in my way of life. That's a hard word for me to say. John chapter 13 verse 35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You take out the love, you are left with nothing. Let me give you an example. Last week, Pride Week, and this is in Seattle. Some house, some random house, put out the rainbow flag to mark their support for Pride Week. Now, I'm not talking about views on this issue at all. I know from having talked to many of you that there's a whole range of views in this room right now. I'm not talking about the view itself. Anybody can have a view. It costs you nothing to have a view. Okay? You may think your view is precious and well thought through, but I'm telling you it's worthless unless it's marked by love and personal sacrifice. And then somebody, and I think somebody who claims to be a Christian, went over to this house and carved, this is trespassing and also um, what, damage to, yeah, it's vandalism, right? Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13 and Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You can look, look up later what these verses say, but it basically says, if you live a certain lifestyle, you need to die, and it's all your own damn fault. It's harsh, it's crude, it's without love, it's a view, but it's self-centered. This isn't about loving people. This is about you or whoever, they, whoever did this getting whatever anxiety they were feeling off their chest. Now, this is not helpful. This is adding to the toxicity. There's not one single person that's helped by this act. And yet, I'm telling you, this is what people think about when they think about the church, when they think about Christians, when they think about people who claim to hold views, who claim to love the Bible. But it breaks my heart because this is not what the Bible says. The Bible says, you know about my way of life, how I suffered, how, how I was persecuted, how I endured for you, for love. And so this is my prayer for Christians in this church that we be marked, not by opinions without cost, but by love that's costly, by a focus on people and, a, uh, and our own way of life that validates whatever it is we claim to believe. Um, one more application. This is just a mentioning of something that I mentioned when, I was, uh, when we were doing the 
uh, annual meeting last week. Uh, there's a sort of, it's kind of new language for me, but the Lilly Endowment has partnered with Whitworth University to create what's called a third-way community. It's a way of being church. And here's what it says. Post-Christendom refers to a situation in which Christianity and the church no longer hold a position of cultural privilege and power. Identifying a third way echoes language used in the early Christian period. The Christian movement was not religiously pluralistic and syncretistic as Rome was the first way. Neither was it culturally and ethnically isolated as Judaism was the second way. It, is embodied, it embodied a third way which proved to be highly effective in the ancient world. The third way is the way the church was birthed if you read the book of Acts. They found a way to be salt and light in the world and yet not becoming of it. And the way they were able to be a third-way community was by willing to personally suffer and die. For example, when the plagues came to Europe, when everybody else was fleeing, Christians ran towards the epicenters of cities where people were dying. That's third-way community. And you notice this idea of the church losing privilege and power. I think that's a really good thing that's happened because power corrupts. And the church has become diluted as it became corrupted. Losing privilege and power has the redemptive benefit of the church also losing the luxury of being oblivious. We're finally waking up to reality, to what people have been feeling and thinking all around us for years. And so church, wake up. You've lost privilege and power, and that's a gift of, the, gift of God. Now we get to really understand how people have been experiencing us. And lastly, as my final application point, fathers, as Brad pointed out to us, you have the opportunity to make tremendous impact on those around you. Human history and our culture has given you headship over the world. History says so. Our culture still says so. And you have the opportunity not to exploit people around you, but to use your position and privilege to love on those all around you. May your Father's way of life, your love, your purpose, be obvious to all and be the power in your life. I close with these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You know that you are a letter from Christ, the result. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not, as tablets of, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Let's pray. Father, I pray for our church. I pray for every single person in this room that claims to be a follower of Christ. God, I pray that our lives may be marked by love and personal sacrifice. God, I pray that our lives be louder than our words. I pray that our love be stronger than our views. And I pray that there can be an automatic validation of who we say we are in Christ because of the life we lead. I pray that.
and I pray for our culture that they may feel the light. They may taste the salt and be edified and be made curious and ultimately be drawn to you. And I pray for dads here in this room this morning. I pray that we may have power in our life. Power, not, not, not power that comes from position, but power that comes from love and personal sacrifice. God, the plumb line by which we measure everything is not what we think or say, but it is our love and our suffering. Help us, God, to be authentic, true, and righteous in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.